we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp h-e-l-p.com slash gold in my early days i faced a pivotal moment in my career instead of following the herd into traditional finance i charted my own course despite skepticism i founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility through perseverance i established myself as a leading voice in finance proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed to get what you want sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail that's what harry's did seeing people tricked by expensive razors harry's took a stand Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Indeed for supporting the 700th episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, interview, all on Indeed. If you're hiring, then you need Indeed. Get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. The offer is valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions do apply. Well, earlier this morning, we got the government release of its official inflation report card, uh, the CPI index. Of course, the CPI is highly rigged in that it was reverse engineered to mask inflation rather than to honestly report it. So it doesn't really tell the whole story, but even half the story is pretty bad. And let's get to the numbers. First of all, remember, we got a really bad number last month. We were up 0.8 for the headline and up 0.9 for the core. So those are some very big numbers, uh, much bigger than people were expecting. In fact, the prior four numbers that we got so far this year, January, February, March, and April, all four of those inflation numbers beat expectations. And the streak continues. The numbers that we got today 
not only beat expectations, but they beat the crap out of expectations on a percentage basis. So the expectation for the increase in headline CPI was 0.4. The actual increase was 0.6. And that matched the upper range of expectations, which stretched from a low of 0.3 to a high of 0.6. So 50% above what had been expected. Now, the only thing that maybe you could try to hang your hat on, but I wouldn't do that, is the fact that this is the first month of the year where sequentially the increase in the CPI is lower than the previous month. Because in January, we were up 0.3, February 0.4, March 0.6, April 0.8, and now we're back down to 0.6, which is still a very big number. I don't think it's the beginning of a downward trend where we're now going to have sequentially lower numbers. I think obviously we couldn't be up every single month. So we're going to have a step forwards maybe after taking four steps backwards, meaning a higher CPI is the CPI going in the wrong direction, at least from the perspective of the consumer. Uh, Maybe the Fed claims that they want high inflation, but most people who are buying goods and services want their cost of living to go down, not up. But I think it's going to be one step back, maybe two, I don't know, but then we're going to have many, many more steps upward in inflation. In fact, I expect that the back half of the year will actually be a bigger increase than the front half. And by the way, if you annualize the first five months of the year, that's six and a half percent because prices are already up by 2.7% during those five months. Remember, the Fed's target is for prices to go up by 2% for a year, and they've already gone up 2.7%, and with the year is only five months over. So if you just take that number, take the average of the five months and multiply by 12, right, you get 6.5% annualized headline price increases. Now, The real rate of increase is probably at least double that. My guess is closer to 15%. That is the pace of CPI gains that we're really on right now. And even even if it's transitory, meaning that we don't continue these big gains in future years, we're not going to reverse them. Maybe if you believe the Fed, after a huge increase in prices in 2021, We'll just go back to a steady 2% increase in future years. But remember, we would be increasing prices from that big elevated level, which would represent a permanent reduction in the purchasing power of everybody's savings and everybody's income. But I don't believe that's going to be the case. I think you're going to see a continuous increase. I think the rate in 2022 will actually be higher than the rate in 2021. And the reason I think that the back half of the year will be higher than the front half is I think a lot of companies have been reluctant to pass on their higher costs to the end consumer. There's a lot of reasons that businesses might initially eat the increase in their input costs. Uh, From a competitive standpoint, they don't want to raise their prices. Maybe their competitors are not raising their prices. They may lose some market share. Plus, if they think the price increases 
are temporary, just kind of a fluke related to the reopening of the economy, uh, you know, they don't want to have to raise them and lower them and raise them. They change prices not very frequently. And so they really want to make sure that their higher costs are going to stick before they stick it to the consumer uh, by raising their prices. So I think by the end of the year, as we get closer to the end of the year, a lot of companies are going to be under significant pressures to pass on these higher costs. I mean, take a look at what happened with Campbell's Soup. Uh, they warned yesterday that their profits were going to miss Wall Street estimates. The reason is higher input costs and higher transportation costs. Exactly what I have been talking about on this podcast. Now, the stock was down about 6 or 7% on the news, but what is Campbell's Soup going to do to address this problem? Ultimately, it is going to raise prices. It hasn't raised them yet, so they're not really included in the CPI numbers that we've got so far this year. But if they end up raising them before the end of the year, which is exactly what I expect. In fact, I think a lot of companies are going to deliver these price hikes maybe in time for Christmas because they really want to close out the books with higher prices so they can show their shareholders and all the analysts that they have some way of restoring their margins so that they can, you know, validate their stock prices. So a lot of price hikes are yet to come. And so that's, again, the reason that I think the second half of 2021 could see an even bigger increase in prices than the first half. Of course, everybody still thinks the first half is transitory. Although one of the things that's kind of amazing about uh, this whole inflation denier crowd out there who believes everything is transitory, the fact that for five consecutive months in a row, everybody has been surprised that the inflation numbers have come in so much worse than expected, right? Every month they expect less inflation and they get more inflation. Yet all of these people who are so surprised every time we get an inflation number that's much higher than they thought, they're still clinging to the false notion that inflation is transitory. Well, the fact that they're wrong every month, they're just wrong in total. All the inflation is going to keep beating their expectations, including the fact that it's transitory because the inflation that we're experiencing is anything but transitory. It is only going to get worse. But let me get back to these numbers because I haven't finished analyzing them. So I already talked about the headline number. The year-over-year headline number, which was up 4.2% last month, the expectation was for that year-over-year number to go up to 46 for the current month. Instead, we got 5.0. We have a five handle on year-over-year CPI gain. That hasn't happened since 2008. Now, if you look at the core, remember we had 0.9 in April, huge increase. The expectation was for a gain of 0.4. The range of estimates was from a low of up 0.4 to up 0.6. Instead, we came in at up 0.7. We actually came in above the upper end of expectations. That's 75% higher than what was expected. So the headline number was only 50% more than they expected, but the core was 75% more. Year over year, as of last month, core CPI was up 3%. The expectation was for a rise of 3.4%. 
the range of estimates was from a low of 3.2 to a high of 3.6. And we topped that with 3.8 year-over-year core CPI. That is the highest since 1992. By the way, I didn't mention that the year-over-year headline increase of 5%, that also exceeded the high end of estimates, which was anywhere from 45 to 4.9. So not only do we keep beating the estimates, we beat the high end of the estimates. But, you know, there's an interesting thing because if you go back to 2008, which was the last time inflation was this bad, and you consider this huge differences between the situation in 2008 and the situation right now, because 2008 marked the high point of inflation, at least you know the way the CPI measures it. And then we started to see a, a big reduction in the rate of CPI growth. Well, what was going on in 2008? Well, first of all, in mid-2008, we had just had a massive multi-year dollar bear market. The U.S. dollar index was at a record low in the summer of 2008. It was down at about 70, right? And the same time, commodity prices were on fire. Oil almost hit $150 a barrel in the summer of 2008. It was about 148. So you had commodity prices on a tear. You had the dollar getting torn up. And in that environment of a crashing dollar and a rising commodity market, we finally got up to 5% year-over-year price increases. Oil prices are less than half of what they were back then. The U.S. dollar index is at 90. It's not at 70. So this is very different. What happened in 2008 to kind of put a lid on consumer prices was we had the financial crisis. And when the financial crisis started, not only did it usher in the Great Recession, but it also ushered in a sharp dollar rally. So that big increase in the dollar and a collapse in commodity prices that also coincided with the Great Recession, because as the economy moved into this massive recession, oil collapsed. I mean, it went down to like $30, $40 a barrel. It crashed. And all commodities crashed. And that's what took the pressure off the rising consumer price index. Well, is that going to happen now? I mean, not even close. I mean, the dollar is just beginning this new bear market. It's got a long way to fall. So this is going to help accelerate the price increases that we're seeing now. Does anybody believe a financial crisis similar to 2008 is on the horizon? I don't think so. The Fed's got interest rates at zero. You know, back then, I think in 08, they were still above 4%, maybe four and a quarter or four and a half. I forget exactly. I know they peaked out at five and a quarter, I think back in 06, but then the Fed gradually started to lower rates as there were some signs that the economy was softening. Of course, there were signs that we were headed for a financial crisis too. They just never noticed those. But the Fed had reduced interest rates a little bit, but they were still way up there. They're at zero right now. So we have 0% rates. Oil is only $70 a barrel, not 150 with a long way to go up. The dollar index is not at 70, it's at 90 with a long way to fall. What we're looking at right now with 5% year-over-year inflation is not the end of the pickup in inflation, but the start of a much bigger pickoff. This is like a launching pad. I mean, it's not like we have 
a financial crisis and a strengthening dollar to put a lid on consumer prices, a collapsing dollar is going to blow the lid off of consumer prices. So the economic environment that we're in right now is very different as it impacts consumer prices. So rather than getting the relief that we got in 2008 that cooled these big gains, uh, there's no relief in sight. In fact, paradoxically, at least the way a lot of people look at it, when the Fed was able to slash interest rates in 2008 from above 4% to zero, that actually helped offset the rising costs that a lot of businesses were experiencing. And so that kind of offset some of the other costs that had gone up and that acted to restrain inflation. I mean, most people think, hey, rate cuts are going to be inflationary, but you people forget that interest rates represent a cost, right? If you're a business and you have debt, well, the interest cost on your debt is part of the overall cost structure of your organization. And you have to make up those costs with the prices that you charge your consumers for your goods and services. Well, when interest rates collapsed, a lot of businesses were able to refinance their debt and now their debt service payments were lower. So now they had a lower uh, capital cost structure and so that would enable them to pass on some of the savings to their consumers uh, with lower prices or it offset some of the cost increases that they were experiencing in raw materials or other, other areas. So that acted to keep uh, prices down. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com.
traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Think about rents, right? A lot of landlords, people that own commercial real estate and residential real estate, a lot of landowners had mortgages on their properties. And all of a sudden, they could refinance those mortgages, and now their whole cost structure went down. So now that puts them in a position to lower the rents that they're charging their tenants. And even if they don't want to lower the rents, competition is going to force those rents down because everybody is refinancing their debts at lower rates. So everybody's cost structure is coming down. And so in a competitive market, uh, prices are going to come down. So paradoxically, the Fed was actually able to help reduce prices by slashing interest rates to zero. Well, they can't slash interest rates now. They're already at zero. So as businesses are seeing increasing costs in their raw materials or their transportation, the way Campbell's Soup was, the Fed can't slash interest rates. So Campbell's Soup can refinance some debt to save some money on its interest expense to offset some of those higher costs for raw materials or transportation. There is no offset. So that means the consumer is going to have to literally eat all of these price increases without any offsets from lower interest rates because interest rates have nowhere to go but up actually. In fact, when the Fed finally starts to raise interest rates, rising interest rates are going to be yet another cost that businesses and landlords are going to have to pass on to their consumers. So we're going to have higher rates contributing to rising inflation, not fighting it. Even more confusing, though, to most people is probably the market's reaction to these much worse than expected inflation numbers. First of all, the stock market was positive pretty much all day today. I mean, we didn't close on the highs, uh, but the S&P 500 closed at a new all-time record high, up almost a half a percent. The fact that it was even positive at all, right, in the face of such bad inflation numbers is perplexing a lot of people, but it makes perfect sense to me because I think that people are buying stocks as their inflation hedge of choice. So it's not, again, as I explained in my last podcast, that the stock market going up proves that we don't have to worry about inflation. I think it proves the opposite. The stock market is being driven by inflation and by the fears that the Fed is not going to be able to control inflation. And so people are buying stocks. Now, the sensible thing to do, though, would be to sell bonds, but that's not what's happening. Bond prices actually rose today and yields declined. The yield on the 10-year closed the day at just below 1.46. On the 30-year, we closed at about 2.15. Again, these are ridiculously low numbers. How can you have a yield of 1.5%, less than that, on a 10-year when we already have year-over-year CPI inflation of 5%. And if you annualize the first five months of this year, we're looking at 6.5% and probably more because, again, the back half is going to be worse than the front half. 
who in their right mind would be buying these U.S. treasuries, loaning money to the U.S. government for 10 years for 1.5% interest in a 6% plus inflationary environment, right? It doesn't make sense at all. The only theoretical explanation, other than the fact that, you know, the, the market is completely broken, and I discussed that in the last podcast, is I think some people are looking at the increase in prices and correctly concluding that this is a headwind for the economy, that if prices really go up, it saps purchasing power. If consumers have to spend more money on food and energy and stuff like that, they have less discretionary income and therefore spending in other areas is curtailed. And so the economy slows down. In fact, it's possible and in fact, probable that if prices go up enough, it could cause a recession. And so I think what bond traders are thinking is that these high prices will actually cure high prices, that it will solve the problem in and of itself because they think that high prices will cause a recession and then the recession will cause prices to fall. And so the inflation is going to go away because a recession is going to put an end to the price increases. But that's because they don't understand inflation. It has nothing to do with economic growth. It's money supply growth. And in fact, if higher prices undermine economic growth and even engender a recession, the Federal Reserve will respond to that by creating even more inflation, by printing even more money. So as I said before on this podcast, the weaker the economy gets, the stronger inflation is going to be. So if people are buying bonds because they assume a weakening economy is going to put out the inflation fire, they're wrong. A weakening economy is going to throw gasoline on the inflation fire. People still don't get it that this is stagflation. And of course, where they really don't get it is in the gold market, not just the bond market. In fact, the initial reaction, again, just like clockwork, the minute we got a hotter than expected inflation number, traders sold gold. In fact, I think the the algorithms are already programmed. The minute they see the number, they hit the sell button and, and gold was down almost 20 bucks. Now, before the number was released, I think it was down seven or eight dollars. So gold was already kind of on the weak side. And I think it was weak because traders were expecting a worse than expected inflation number. After all, we've had four inflation numbers in a row that were worse than expected. So you might assume that that streak is going to continue, and and it did. So I think traders were already ready for that print. And so some of the selling had already happened on anticipation of a hotter than expected inflation number. And so when we got it, uh, there wasn't as much selling. Then, of course, we got a little bit of a buy the news because shortly after gold tank, it reversed. And in fact, it rallied back throughout the day and really closed on the high of the day. In fact, as I'm recording this podcast, you know, we're up a little over 10 bucks. Market closed about an hour ago. So gold is back just below 1900 again, 1898 and change. Silver also up about 23 cents on the day, now at 2796. So just below 28. So both gold and silver completely shrugged off the hotter than expected inflation numbers. And again, I've explained this seemingly paradoxical reaction in the markets because gold is an inflation hedge. Silver is an inflation hedge. So wouldn't news that inflation is worse than expected cause people to want to buy gold and buy silver? No, it causes them to want to sell it because as we keep getting surprised with bad inflation numbers, 
Traders keep expecting the Fed to react to these surprisingly bad inflation numbers with tighter policy. They're going to raise rates sooner. They're going to taper sooner. After all, they keep telling us that inflation is not a problem. It's transitory. But the data keeps showing that it is a problem, that it's not transitory. And so the markets are trying to brace for the Fed to finally acknowledge that they have an inflation problem and then solve it. And it's the idea that the Fed is going to solve the inflation problem that is pressuring gold. Well, again, I pointed this out. The fact that every time traders make that asinine trade, there is real money coming in buying on that dip. And so I think the markets are figuring this out, that this is not a problem that the Fed's going to solve. It's a problem that the Fed's going to make worse. Now, a $10 move up in gold is not really a big deal, right? Gold stocks were up today. The GDX was up 2.5%. Uh, GDXJ up a little better than 3%, still well off the highs uh, from the 52-week level. So this is not a strong move, but that move is coming. I mean, we are going to have an explosive move up in the price of gold and silver any day. I mean, I don't know. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. I don't know when it's coming, but all I know is you should be fully invested now in anticipation of of this explosive move, right? Because people are going to figure this out en masse and they are going to scramble for the best possible inflation hedge that's out there. And it's, again, it's not the gold and silver itself, the metal, it's these mining stocks. It's these companies that actually have huge reserves of a commodity that's about to go way up in price. And they're going to be able to mine their gold and silver for obscene profits, which they are going to be able to share with their investors with increasing dividends, which people are going to need in an inflationary environment because the cost of living is going to go way up. So you need an income stream that can go way up too. And I think that is what these gold mining stocks are going to deliver. So before people figure that out, people should be getting fully invested in the sector. Also, there is very little reaction in the foreign exchange market to the worse than expected inflation numbers. And again, intuitively, you would think that higher than expected inflation would be bearish for the dollar. After all, by definition, if there's more inflation, that means the dollar is losing purchasing power faster than holders of dollars had expected. Well, if you're holding on to dollars and they're losing even more purchasing power than you thought, wouldn't that create an additional reason to get rid of those dollars? You would want to sell them before you lost even more purchasing power. And again, what inflation is really measuring is not how much prices are going up, but how much value the dollar is losing. And because the dollar has less value in terms of purchasing power, prices are higher. So higher inflation, by definition, means the dollar is weakening. And so you should see that in the foreign exchange markets with the dollar getting lower. But again, the same phenomena that we're seeing in the gold market, it's these hotter than expected inflation numbers that cause the traders to anticipate the Fed to raise interest rates to fight that inflation. And it's the anticipation of higher interest rates that causes people to want to buy the dollar rather than the fear of higher inflation causing them to want to sell the dollar. But again, we didn't get a dollar rally. 
which I think is significant because in the past, the dollar has actually rallied on these hotter than expected inflation numbers. And the fact that it did not rally to me tells me that it's getting ready to sell off because if the dollar won't go up, well, then it's certainly going to go down. And it means that people are, again, starting to realize, just like with the gold market, that higher inflation is here to stay. The Fed's not going to be able to put out the fire. So you better do whatever you can to make sure that you don't get burned. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, and interview, and you do it all on Indeed. You can get a quality short list of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description. You get it faster, and you only pay for the candidates that meet your must-have qualifications and schedule and complete video interviews In your Indeed dashboard, Indeed makes connecting with and hiring the right talent fast and easy with tools like Indeed Instant Match, which gives you quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description immediately and the Indeed skills test that on average reduce hiring time by 27%. You can choose from more than 130 skill tests and you can add your must-have requirements. And then you only pay for the applicants that meet them. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all the other job sites combined. If you're hiring, then you need Indeed. And you can get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Peter. Indeed.com slash Peter. Offer valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Of course, I have to comment on Bitcoin's reaction or lack thereof, really, because as I'm watching all of the markets, I'm also watching Bitcoin and nothing actually happened to the price of Bitcoin around the release of the the CPI. And that's because for all this nonsense about Bitcoin being an inflation hedge, the price of Bitcoin has absolutely nothing to do with inflation. It is a market in and of itself, and it marches to the beat of a crazy drum that nobody can understand. And so it is irrelevant when it comes to inflation. In fact, I'm hearing people talk on CNBC about why people need to have Bitcoin. They were talking about now there's a a company with a retirement plan or 401k that was going to allow employees whose employers are part of this plan to invest as much as 5% of their portfolio in a basket of cryptocurrencies. I mean, they can pick from among 50, I think, different cryptos, and they can allocate as much as 5% of their portfolio. And they were talking about this mainly in a positive way, but they were talking about the fact that, well, people need an inflation hedge, and so they should buy Bitcoin. Well, if you want an inflation hedge, the last thing you should buy is Bitcoin, because who the hell knows what the price of Bitcoin is going to be in the future, because it's not tied to the price of any other good, because it's not a good. If you want an inflation hedge, buy stocks. You know, you could buy gold, you could buy other commodities, you could buy gold stocks, you could buy foreign stocks. There's all sorts of things that you could buy if you're worried about inflation. But the one thing you shouldn't buy is Bitcoin, because then you got a whole bigger problem on your hands to worry about than just inflation. And by the way, you know, CNBC today, this was one of the biggest days of Bitcoin pumping and coverage. I mean, at one point they had a whole hour in the middle of the day devoted just to Bitcoin. But it wasn't like they only talked about Bitcoin for that hour because every other hour, probably the biggest topic they discussed 
was Bitcoin. And they brought on all the regular suspects to come on and, and pump up Bitcoin and talk about how great it is. You know, there was a survey that came out uh, recently and CNBC actually wrote an article about the survey. It was a Bank of America survey and they surveyed professional investors. And 75% of the professional investors said that they thought Bitcoin was a bubble, right? So they had no interest in investing in it. And only 10% of the people surveyed thought that Bitcoin would likely outperform, you know, the stock market, right? So had no interest in buying it. So it's a minority of professional investors that actually like Bitcoin and have any interest in investing in it. But if you watched CNBC, you would think it's almost unanimous that the entire investment community has fully embraced Bitcoin because almost 100% of the people that CNBC invites on its air to discuss Bitcoin are bullish on Bitcoin and are recommending that everybody own Bitcoin, right? So that is not representative of the professional investment community, yet that's who they invite on. Obviously, there is a bias here. CNBC has an agenda to deliberately mislead its audience into thinking that Bitcoin is much more widely embraced on Wall Street and by professional investors than it really is in order to con its viewers into buying the product, right, that its advertisers are selling. And interestingly enough, too, during the whole day, because Bitcoin had a big rally like late last night, early this morning. And I have a feeling that the rally is inspired by front running related to Michael Saylor and uh, MicroStrategies upsized $500 million Bitcoin buy. I don't know that they've bought it yet or they're just starting to buy it, but they just did the deal. It was actually oversubscribed because, you know, I guess yield six and an eighth is considered a high yield, you know, in the junk bond market, which shows you how distorted everything is uh, because of the Fed. The only reason that MicroStrategy can sell bonds that cheap, junk bonds that cheap, is because the Fed's got interest rates at zero. But you know, with interest rates at zero, people will be will do really dumb things like loan money to MicroStrategy to buy Bitcoin at six and an eighth for I think six or seven years is the maturity on these bonds. But everybody knows that now there's a big buyer in the market. You've got MicroStrategy with five hundred million dollars burning a hole in its pocket ready to buy Bitcoin. And so clearly that is like waving a red flag at a bull. Hey, buy Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin, load up on Bitcoin, run up the price because you have a big buyer who will take you out and buy up all your Bitcoin. And again, more importantly, they're paying real dollars that they got from selling their bonds, right? These aren't fake dollars from Tether. This is real money. So here's a chance to actually sell some Bitcoin for some dollars. And so people are trying to maximize that by buying Bitcoin now, which pushes up the price, and then they can sell it all uh, to MicroStrategy. And of course, once MicroStrategy is filled and they own all the Bitcoin, well, then the market can continue its collapse because you have to be a complete fool, which obviously Sailor is, to look at the current chart of Bitcoin knowing that it can easily fall to 20,000 or maybe 10,000 or lower in the next several months and be willing to step in front of that freight train with borrowed money. I mean, it'd be one thing if they had all this cash and they didn't know what to do with it. They don't even have the cash. They have to borrow the cash and they're taking such a crazy gamble. This is 
the sign of desperation. And why is Michael Saylor so desperate? Because he knows if Bitcoin crashes, it's going to take MicroStrategy down with it because it's already so levered up. So he's doing what all these creditors used to do that loan money to South American countries because they didn't want to write down the debt. They kept loaning him more and more money because they didn't want to admit that they made a mistake. So they throw good money after bad. And that's exactly what MicroStrategy is doing, except they're throwing good money after no money, after bad crypto is what they're doing. And it's a desperate uh, move from a desperate man. uh, And the markets still haven't figured this out. But of course, that's why Michael Saylor has repeatedly turned down each and every invitation to debate me. Every podcast uh, that he's been on, has tried to basically have him debate me. I mean, I do a lot of these podcasts. He does them. In fact, even if you got a brand new podcast, you don't even have a thousand subscribers. If you get a few hundred views, Michael Saylor will do an hour with you, right? And he's got nothing to do all day. Forget about running a software company. I mean, all he does is pump Bitcoin. Yet, you know, obviously, if he did a debate with me, it would be one of the most watched interviews he's ever done yet he doesn't want to do it. Why? Because he's afraid, because he knows that I will expose him for the fraud that he is. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. In fact, Michael Saylor got to take his shtick primetime. He was on with Sean Hannity on Fox News. I think it was yesterday. He got over six minutes, which is a lifetime on national television, to basically do a commercial for Bitcoin. I mean, Hannity doesn't understand enough about it to be critical at all. So he kind of sat back and he allowed this guy to just spew all this nonsense about Bitcoin, trying to pump it up, get the Hannity audience to go buy Bitcoin to try to keep the price going up. One of the most ridiculous things he said was that Bitcoin is not a threat to the U.S. dollar. And of course, privately, what Bitcoin maximalists always say is, of course, it's a threat to the U.S. dollar. It's going to dethrone the U.S. dollar. But guys like Michael Saylor don't want anyone in the government, in the U.S. government, to feel threatened by Bitcoin, even though privately the whole case for Bitcoin is that it supplants the dollar. But publicly, in order to appease the regulators, Saylor has to say, oh, Bitcoin's not a threat to the U.S. dollar at all. The dollar is great. The dollar is going to stay the world's reserve currency. It's just that according to Michael Saylor, the U.S. dollar is going to be backed by Bitcoin. I mean, what kind of nonsense is that? It is possible for the U.S. government to back the dollar with Bitcoin. This is just sheer nonsense. But all Saylor wants to do is try to hype up Bitcoin and get people to buy it. And it really is a shame that Sean Hannity is giving him a platform to so deceive his audience and try to separate them from their money. Also, I think one of the reasons that Saylor went out of his way to reassure the Hannity audience that Bitcoin was not a threat to the U.S. dollar was because Donald Trump, a couple of days earlier, was on Fox with Stuart Barney and specifically called Bitcoin a scam and said one of the reasons he doesn't like it is because he views it as a threat to the U.S. dollar. 
And so this was a form of damage control on a part of Saylor with the Fox audience, because a lot of the Fox audience are hardcore Donald Trump fans. And if Donald Trump is saying Bitcoin's a scam because he views it as a threat to the dollar, then he has to defuse that bomb. So he has to make sure that the Hannity audience doesn't view Bitcoin as a threat to the U.S. dollar, even though if he was talking to a different crowd, just like any politician, a real hardcore Bitcoin audience, he would say the exact opposite. He would, of course, say that Bitcoin is going to dethrone the dollar, but because Trump fans don't want to hear that, he's just telling whatever lie is necessary to try to convince the audience to buy some Bitcoin. And speaking about fraud, let me change gears and talk about an even bigger fraud that's being perpetuated now by the Biden administration. Supposedly, there was some information leaked by the Treasury Department on how much tax the 25 richest Americans have been paying, how much income tax. And the, the data, which you know comes from the IRS through the Treasury Department, whatever, was leaked to a news organization, ProPublica, obviously a left-wing advocacy group that somehow got their hands on this information. And as far as the media is concerned, this is like a bombshell. This is like a smoking gun. And basically, the way it is being spun is they're showing how much income taxes the wealthiest people paid, like Warren Buffett or Bezos or Zuckerberg or Elon Musk, and they're comparing what they paid in income taxes to how much wealth they gained in a given year based mainly on stock market appreciation. So they're saying, hey, these wealthy people are paying an average of like 3% of their income in tax, but they're including in their income the unrealized paper gains on their ownership of stock. But that's not income. If you haven't sold your stock, the fact that it appreciated doesn't mean that you've got any income. You don't derive any income until you sell the stock and get a capital gain. And that capital gain will be part of your income. And certainly there were years where these very rich people sold stock. And during those years, they paid enormous income taxes. But what the media is focusing on are the years where these wealthy people didn't sell any stock at all and therefore didn't realize any income that was subject to tax. Now, we have an income tax in this country. We don't have a wealth tax. Now, a wealth tax would be unconstitutional unless they wanted to apportion it, which they don't. So you can't tax wealth. You can only tax the income that is derived from that wealth. And if you're not deriving any income from your wealth, then you don't have to pay an income tax because that's the type of tax. But it's very disingenuous to try to claim unrealized capital gain is income and then show how much somebody paid in income taxes relative to their increasing wealth when we're not taxing the wealth. But apparently this is outraging everybody that Warren Buffett hardly pays any taxes. Well, that's because Warren Buffett never sells any stock, you know, and he pays himself a minimal salary. But you know what? He's giving away all his money to charity. So it's not like he's screwing people over. Uh, it's charities that are going to get most of Warren Buffett's money. I'd much rather private charities get it than the U.S. government get it. But a lot of these other companies, too, are these executives they don't actually have any income because what if these stocks go down? I mean, what if the market crashes, right? Then, then then the whole thing reverses. I mean, it's almost like they're claiming 
that we should include as income the unrealized appreciation of an asset. Well, if that were the case, and we were trying to make people pay an income tax on unrealized capital gains, what would happen when the market goes down? If the market crashes, are we gonna have to send out checks? Is US government gonna have to reimburse all these wealthy people for their paper losses with actual money? This whole thing is ridiculous, but to act like this is some big revelation that, oh my God, people are not paying taxes on the appreciated value of their stocks. Well, of course, I mean, no American is paying taxes on the appreciated value of their unrealized gains. People have houses now that they own. They're going way up. Nobody is paying tax. The IRS is not saying, hey, your house went up in value this year. Let's tax you on it, right? What about all the young people that bought cryptocurrency years ago? Somebody might've put $5,000 into Bitcoin and now it's worth a million. They haven't paid any taxes. They haven't sold the Bitcoin yet. If they haven't sold, they don't have any income. They still have the same Bitcoin that they started with. They only have income once they sell and realize that income. But the question is, why was this information leaked? I don't think this was an accident. And I don't think that the Biden administration somehow didn't have a hand in the selective release of this information. And by the way, if I was one of these people, I would be protesting uh, like, you know, Bezos, uh, this information that you send to the IRS is supposed to be confidential, right? The government is not supposed to leak it out because you are disclosing private financial information. It's not for public dissemination. You're supposed to expect some degree of privacy, at least from the public. I mean, obviously you get no privacy from the government. You basically bare your soul. They know everything about you. That's why my dad always called the tax return a confession, because what you're doing is you're confessing to the government. You're not returning to government any information that they understand. In fact, the original tax return the reason it was called a return is because the government sent it to you already prepared, right? They figured out your income. They sent you a bill, right? And then you looked it over and you agreed with it. You signed it. You put a check in and you returned it to the government. So the government gave you the information and then you returned it to them. That's why it's a tax return. You're returning it to the government. But now the government doesn't know anything about you until you confess everything. So we have a, a tax confession. But, you know, they're making a big deal out of the fact that, um, Jeff Bezos took advantage of, you know, a $4,000 a child tax credit. Now, A, how do they know that he took that tax credit unless they have his entire return? So this information is being leaked. It's been shared. This is personal information. I think there could be some kind of lawsuit here because it's not in the public interest. I don't even think newspapers should be reporting information that was obviously stolen on private individuals where the public has no compelling interest to know the deductions of individuals. But of course, making a big deal out of the fact that he took advantage of the tax credit, it's in the law. Why wouldn't he? Is he supposed to ignore it? I mean, how many Americans, when they're doing their taxes, just decide that they're not going to take advantage of their deductions? Does anybody do that? You think anybody has a conversation with their accountant and they said, you know what? I don't want my deductions. I just want to pay higher taxes than the law. So don't give me all the deductions. Just, you know, I'm just going to pay a higher tax. Nobody says that. So why, why should Bezos? Just because he's rich? Yeah, you know, pay a little extra. Don't take that credit. I mean, look, the credit is there and he takes it like everybody else. This is all class warfare as if somehow he's an evil, bad person. But again, there is a strategy here. What is going on in Washington right now? There's a budget battle. The Biden administration 
wants this $6 trillion spending, right? Official spending bill, biggest ever. And he wants to pay for part of it by raising taxes on the rich. And he's having a problem because none of the Republicans in the Senate are going to go for it. And so he needs all of the Democrats so that Kamala Harris can break the tie. One Democratic defector sinks the entire thing. And there are some Democrats that are a little gun shy about raising taxes. And so this is meant to put pressure on them and to provide political cover by creating this false outrage among the public that somehow the millionaires are not paying any tax, that it's the working class that are paying all the taxes and the rich, the super rich are paying nothing. And that's why this was selectively leaked to advance a policy agenda. Look, I agree that the working class gets screwed by the income tax. That's why I want to abolish it. I don't think we should have taxes on labor. I don't think you should have to pay an income tax on your your salary or your wages. In fact, in the original concept of an income tax, it wasn't supposed to be taxed because wages were not even considered a gain, right? If you work for wages, it's an even trade. You give your employer your labor and he gives you money. So it's an even trade. In fact, when an employer gives you money, the value of your labor, the employer deducts that from their tax return. So if your employer deducts from his income, the value of the money that he gives you as an employee, why can't you deduct from your own income tax the value of the labor that you give to your employer? Because your employer is giving you money that has value, but you're giving your employer your labor, which also has value. In fact, if it didn't have value, your employer wouldn't be willing to buy it. So when you work for wages, you don't have a gain. You've exchanged labor for money. There is no gain. Income tax is a tax on a gain. So nobody who just works for wages or salaries should pay income taxes. See, the solution to this problem is not to try to raise taxes on capital, but to get rid of the taxes on labor. But of course, we can't do that unless we dramatically shrink the size of government. But the Biden administration wants to make government much, much bigger. But the only constitutional way to pay for that is by taxing the middle class, because that's where the money is. The wealth taxes are off the table. And if they raise income taxes up dramatically, well, you know, they're not going to get the revenue from the rich because they're not going to have the income because the taxes will help destroy it. But, you know, America isn't the only government to employ this kind of strategy where they use the media to push an agenda and a false narrative as a precursor to legislation, which will supposedly solve this problem. In this case, the problem is the rich not paying any taxes, which of course, America relies more heavily on taxes from the rich than every other country. I mean, most other countries in these social democracies that have a bigger welfare state, it's the middle class that pays for it. The rich in America pay a larger share of the income tax than they do in any other country. Yet the misperception is that the rich are getting off scot-free and the middle class and the working poor are carrying the weight, right? And so this leak and the way the media is misreporting it. Because when the media reports it, they don't really differentiate between unrealized capital gains and their taxes. They're acting as if they have all this income, that the rich are making billions a year in actual income, and somehow it's not being taxed. No, it's not being taxed because it's not income. But a lot of people reading these articles or listening to these stories on the news, they, they don't even make the connection. So they just think we need these higher taxes. But this is very similar to what Australia did with 60 Minutes Australia and The Age and me and Euro-Pacific Bank. 
the Australian government had all queued up new legislation to increase anti-money laundering rules, KYC and AML rules, and to impose them on lawyers, on accountants, on other businesses and banks. And the way they drummed up the support for this new unnecessary encroachment into civil liberties and, and freedom in Australia, the way they got the public to believe that this new legislation to crack down on all this money laundering going on in Australia, right, was to do a hit piece on Euro-Pacific Bank because Euro-Pacific Bank was doing business with a lot of reputable companies in Australia. And the reason we were doing business with these reputable companies is because we were a reputable bank. We have a KYC and AML policies second to none. We have great compliance at your Pacific Bank. And because we had such a good record, then reputable companies in Australia who vetted us were willing to do business with us and had done business with us without issue for years and years and years. So what 60 Minutes did was they created a false narrative with some information that got leaked to them by the Australian government. The Australian government gave them this information, selectively one-sided biased information, about my bank. And then, of course, they were very selective in the way they presented the information to the public and the way they edited uh, the interviews with both me and with the other people. But they were able to falsely claim that Euro-Pacific Bank was laundering money for Australians, helping Australian tax evaders, helping Australian drug dealers. None of it was true. They had no evidence that it was true, but they presented it as if it was a fact so they can say, hey, you've got this horrible bank, this terrible bank out there doing drug dealing and money laundering and working with organized criminals. And yet this horrible bank that's doing all this bad stuff has relationships and has been working with some prominent Australian companies for all these years. This is proof that we need more regulation on these Australian companies. And it didn't prove anything because they weren't doing business with a dodgy bank because they were doing business with Euro Pacific Bank, which wasn't dodgy at all. We had a spotless record. We had never had a fine. We had never been censured. No problem with any regulators. But again, it's the government because as soon as the story broke, on 60 Minutes in the Age, the very next day, here's the new legislation all ready to go to solve this non-existent problem and all the articles that were talking about why this new legislation was so important and why we needed it, it all rested on my bank and the fact that all these companies were doing business with it. So we're doing the same thing. This is the way government and media work in cooperation. So it's all fake news. It's all propaganda. And it's amazing that you're not seeing more people pointing out, right? Oh, yeah, like this just happened by coincidence. In the middle of this big negotiation on higher taxes where there's a stalemate, all of a sudden we get this leak and the media is spinning it the way it is. And, you know, the other problem, too, for Biden is that even if they don't have the tax hikes, you don't have unanimous Democrat support for the $6 trillion of spending if it's all going to be financed with debt because there's some Democrats that want the additional spending but won't vote for it without the offsetting tax increases. So Biden is in a real bind and he may be forced to step across the aisle and work with the Republicans, which means a much smaller spending bill without the tax increases.
But this is exactly what the doctor ordered. Just when the doctor needs it, clearly the fix is in. Thank you.